get you Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, Craig, it has come to this. We have been doing this podcast for a little over almost two years now. Yeah, and, yeah. And last week we were hit with the news that George Romero has died. Yeah, it's sad. And George Romero uh, is an icon. He, I don't know about you, but uh, Night of the Living Dead, uh, his his first film, his most iconic film, um, was also happens to be one of the most memorable from my childhood. It's it's funny because it's so iconic, and I, of course, everybody's heard of it, but I don't think that I actually saw the original until I was an adult. Um, it's funny now that we're going to be talking about it, and we call ourselves kind of a review podcast, and I, it almost feels like sacrilege to review this movie. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's <laughs> you know, what is there to say? What is there to say about this movie that hasn't already been said? It's a classic, but um, we thought that it would be, you know, we talked about doing this movie a lot of times and it just seemed a fitting time. Yeah. You, like you said, there are just some movies that almost seem pointless for us to do because they're too easy. <laughs> right. But, right. But maybe, you know, maybe this, we have a lot of younger listeners, maybe people that uh, have heard of it but don't want to watch a black and white movie, don't think it's going to be scary or don't think it's going to be worth their time. Maybe after they sit and listen to us talk about it and spoil it all, then yeah. you know, <laughs> they'll sit down and want to give it another look. We'll see. <laughs> I'll tell you, the thing that really got me um, about this film, uh, and I watched it when I was young, it is probably the first movie that I ever saw that I could say was, was bleak that just absolutely yeah. ends poorly for everyone involved. Big spoiler alert. <laughs> and <Yeah>. we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about it more later, but you know, that had a really profound impact on me as a kid. I just never, I, I honestly do not think that before I saw this movie that I had ever seen a movie that ended badly, uh, ever really had a story that's so tragic uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, Romeo and Juliet or whatever. I don't think I was reading Romeo and Juliet. I'm right. sure I saw this movie before I, I read Shakespeare. But yeah, this this movie just really opened my eyes to the fact that I, the world isn't always a safe, happy place, that things don't always turn out for the best. And it really forced me to seek out more movies like this. And honestly, maybe was responsible more than anything else for getting me into the horror genre in the first place. Huh. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Again, like I said, I, I don't think I really saw it until I was an adult. I mean, I had seen references to it. I had seen clips all over the place. But the movie came out in 1968, which was well before our time. You know, that was more our parents' time. And, and when it came out, the MPAA hadn't even been uh, created yet. I think it was created like maybe the next year or something like that, or, or maybe even the same year, but after the release of this movie. And so this movie was presented in the way that many horror movies were presented at the time. You know, it was matinee fair. The target audience for that matinee fair was was kids, you know, like adolescents and teenagers. Um, and even young kids were were going in and seeing this movie. And <laughs> I think uh, it, was, it was pretty shocking for them because, like you said, it is bleak and it uh, and it is uh, scary. And, you know, it's funny. I'm sure we'll talk about the bazillions of of movies that were inspired by this, or or at least that this movie had some influence on. But 
up until this time, people had never really seen a horror movie like this, where there was a lot of gore and and violence. You know, up until now, it had been, uh, you know, Bella Lugosi and and the classic Universal monsters, and Super and, and so this was stuff, right? Like yeah, sci-fi, cheesy, low-budget thrills. Yeah. Like- it, it, and fun stuff, but but very, very different from this. You know, this is bleak, it is dreary, and it is violent and gory, and um, it shocked a lot of people. And I think that that may be part of the reason why it ended up doing so well. This is one of the most successful independent films of all time. I mean, they filmed it on a budget of, I think, $114,000, and worldwide it ended up grossing, like, 30 plus million dollars. And I think that it was more successful outside of America than it was in America, but it was successful here too. And it really ushered in a brand new era of horror. And I mean, that's cool. I mean, just from a historical perspective, that's such a cool thing. And for this to be, uh, you know, George Romero, had had been working in the industry a little bit. Um, he worked on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, um, and he had done some other you know commercials and I think some public access stuff. But this was his first movie, and they filmed it on such a low budget. And the impact that it made on cinematic history is just it's it's amazing. And you know, you mentioned the the worldwide gross and all that. It's it's well known now that. George Romero and his original backers never saw much of any of that money. Right. It's right. also kind of a big tragedy that the the movie was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters. And when he found distribution for it, the distributor decided they wanted to change the title to Night of the Living Dead. So when they got into the film footage and changed the title card of the movie, what they neglected to add to it or keep on it was the copyright notice. Yeah. And copyright law at that time was really stupid. And it basically just said if you didn't have a copyright notice on your on your work that you immediately forfeit copyright to it. Right, so, public domain. So the minute it was released, <laughs> unfortunately, to the theaters, um, they lost copyright to it, and it was his distributor that got all the money. And that was something that really haunted him for quite a while. But I will tell you that it's because of that. It, maybe this movie wouldn't have had the reach through the years that it's had today if it were not for that. I mean, it's yeah. hard to say because that is, I guarantee you, the reason why I saw it as a kid, you know, years later in the 80s, is because this movie was free for anybody to put on yep. television, to put on cable. You could go to a dollar store and see VHS copies and, and later DVDs um, out the yin yang. Most of them really yep. poor copies of copies, but copies nonetheless. This was a really easy horror movie to find. So, yeah, that's how I got my copy. I got a, you know, in a department store in one of those $1 bins (laughs) (laughs) exactly you know and there would be like parody shows on tv where they would take old public domain movies you know mystery science theater obviously did did a lot but even before mystery science theater even nickelodeon had a tv show called um turkey tv which i think was Mm -hmm. something they imported from canada it was like on canadian tv but nickelodeon had in syndication and i remember seeing a parody of this where they had replaced the dialogue with funny dialogue you know and of course they they could they cut out all the you know the the bad bits and just um and made it funny and and so yeah this movie just maybe even more so became part of the pop culture landscape because it was so widely available to anybody and with that killer title and the notoriety that that you know came after it it just seemed to have lasted through all those years and 
really honestly still holds up today. I really feel like I it think does. so. Yeah, I think it totally holds up today. It's a good movie. And you said, you know, we've got some younger viewers who maybe are not super interested in old black and white movies. And frankly, I'm one of those assholes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're a color snob. (laughs) I typically don't seek out older films like this, but this is one. It really stands up. I mean, it's Oh gosh, you know, there, there's, there's some great acting, there's some not so great acting, but even the not so great acting still fits well within the context of this film. And especially considering that this is a man's first movie, uh, it, it's really strong. Like it's it good storytelling. It's, it's well paced. It's well shot. It's good to look at. Like it looks good. Um, it's just, I just find it so impressive on so many levels. And going back and watching it now, and this is the first time I've seen it in, I don't know, probably years. Yeah, yeah, many years. We were able to find a nice HD quality version on YouTube, and I'll put a link to that on our website. But if you go back, you know, for, for so many years, I grew up on watching these kind of terrible copies of it. And on one hand, the terrible copies of it do the movie a bit more justice because yeah the muddier it is in places the better the makeup looks (laughs) agreed agreed and just like some of the the less quality copies uh, it it almost makes it feel grittier um and 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 the movie actually got some praise for that because this was because of the time period when it was taking place, you know, uh, the Vietnam War was very much in people's minds and um, people, you know, so much news footage had come out of there and it was all very raw and gritty. Uh, and this this movie got some praise for kind of, whether it was intentional or unintentional, kind of uh, emulating that feel. Yeah, so some of the grittier copies, you know, it, this movie almost feels like it should be gritty based on the context. Um, when you... Cl- when when you clean it up, it looks nice. You know, it, it's nice to see people in clear focus. But you're right; um, some of the makeup effects show, and, and because they were doing this on a really low budget, and yeah. so it, it's a zombie movie. And they thought, well, we don't have a lot of money, so let's just kind of make the zombies pale faced with with uh, dark circles around their eyes and you see that in some of the zombies but as they went on they're like well let's try some different stuff (laughs) and and they started using uh like uh mortician's plastic and rubber and and makeup to kind of give some more effects of decay and stuff and and you can so you can see both you can see the dark-eyed pale zombies but you also get some shots of the zombies who are in a further state of decay and and they all look good but yeah when you see it in a really clear like 4k transfer or whatever i mean you can tell it's makeup but it still looks good regardless yeah and the one thing that is exposed in the 4k transfer is the quality of the filming the cinematography in this movie is is pretty good the lighting is good the scenes are lit in very dramatic ways until now i hadn't really paid attention critically to the way that George Romero had framed up his shots and had lit his scenes and things. But I I have a really high level of respect for him. I've always had a high level of respect for him. Sure. But even more so to see that this, his really showed a lot of this talent right out of the gate. Of course, like you said, he'd, he'd worked in other things before. So, you know, nobody comes in with all these skills um, right off the bat. But but 
when you're going into a movie, we've seen tons of, of low-budget films that you have to make apologies <laughs> for those kinds of things. Right. And you don't have to make any apologies about almost anything about this movie, really. The writing yeah. is good. The acting, as you said, is, is good. The cinematography is good. The lighting is good. He's doing some really innovative for the time things with the camera. At times it's handheld. The shots, too, I noticed there were moments where the shots were very askew. Uh, at moments mm-hmm. of high tension, and that's something that you know had kind of escaped my notice before. But you know that is a kind of an advanced technique of really giving you a psychological feeling of unease just by the way that you frame the shot that a first-time filmmaker wouldn't necessarily think to do. Oh, absolutely, and and I feel like this is just one of those examples where things just kind of fell into place. Like every once in a while, you know, with with a movie or or whatever, anything, you know, all the right pieces fall into place and it just works so well, despite the fact that maybe it shouldn't have. The fact that this was this guy's first movie, um, it was shot on a low budget, it was shot with mostly, you know, non-mainstream actors, um, but it just, you mentioned the writing. I agree with you. The writing seems really good. It's good storytelling and the characters are really good. But in researching this, I found out that uh, a lot of the dialogue was improvised as they went along. Really? And, and yeah. And, and, you know, even the casting of the main character, the main character is uh, the, the hero really of the movie is named Ben and he's uh, a man um, named Dwayne Jones. And this character was written as a dumb trucker. Um, and when they did the auditions, Romero cast this guy, Dwayne Jones, um, and he was an African-American man. And it was not written for an African-American man. It was written for a white man. But Romero, And Romero, you know, faced lots of scrutiny at the time and really, I think, throughout his life. People were saying, did you just cast this guy because he was a black guy? And, and he says, absolutely not. It was just that he came in and he did the best audition. Dwayne Jones was a trained stage actor, and he was also a professor of English. He was a highly educated man. Like I said, it was written to kind of be this kind of dumb uh, guy, and he didn't want to play it that way. And so he didn't play it that way. And he, he rewrote and revised a lot of the dialogue to really be more reflective of himself as as an educated strong black man and and in 1968 that was just just unheard of to have a, a strong black male protagonist especially in a movie where he's the only black guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's the hero and and he is. He plays it so strong. You know, this guy comes in and immediately he's resourceful and smart and even keeled and level-headed. Don't worry about him. I can handle him. Probably be a lot more of them as soon as they find out about us. The truck is out of gas. This pump out here is locked. Is there a key? And I mean, you just root for him throughout because he's such a badass. You love him. Uh, you it, do. You just love him from the beginning, yeah. don't you? <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Especially with, with, with what he's contrasted with. And that's why I think, again, this being a happy accident, man, it, it really did fall into place like a perfect puzzle. We might as well go back uh, and just kind of jump into the plot real quick. Yep, uh, yep. Go for it. It starts out with a car driving down the road, and it's Johnny and Barbara, uh, two very white people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Laughably white bread people driving yeah. down the road, going to put some flowers on uh, Johnny's mother's grave. 
And you at first, in fact, I actually, to this day, I thought that they were boyfriend-girlfriend. It wasn't until this viewing <laughs> that I realized that they're brother and sister. That just totally escaped me, even though they referred to as brother and sister like several times in this movie. Right. Anyway, so they're going to go put the flowers on this grave. It's his. It's his mother's it, grave, it, right? No, it's it's their dad. Oh, it's their it's, dad. It's their, yeah, because they have this whole shtick about how <laughs> the, the Johnny, the brother, is like, you know, I don't even remember what the man looks like. Johnny, it takes you five minutes. Yeah, five minutes to put the wreath on the grave and six hours to drive back and forth. Mother wants to remember, so we trot 200 miles into the country and she stays at home. Well, we're here, John, all right? And he's such a jackass. He's like, I don't even care. Like, (laughs) (laughs) And she's she's kind of an airhead. She is an airhead. She's like kind of this doe-eyed, silly girl. Um, And she kind of remains that way throughout, which... Again, I'm I'm not going to really offer any real criticism of this movie because I think that as it is, it's it's just fantastic. But if I were to offer any criticism at all, she is really I, I guess you would call her the heroine of the movie, but she's pretty lame. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, she's lame. And, and as a character, not not as a performance. I appreciate the performance, just the characters. She's weak. She's a weak character. Well, you know, she starts out as as the heroine, and I think he kind of subverts that about, oh, I don't know, a third of the way through the movie when you realize that she's not going to be any help to anybody. It's kind of a movie without a heroine in a way. I feel like Ben ends up being the guy. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No question. Anyway, they get there, they lay the flowers on the grave, and they have a bit of, uh, okay, so this part's a little forced. <laughs> Their dialogue uh, when they're talking about when they went back there as kids, and who knows why they were playing in a graveyard as kids, especially presumably three hours drive away from their, their home. I don't know. <laughs> they have some dialogue about how she was always scared, and uh, Johnny would jump out from behind a tree and scare her, and she goes, oh, I'm... Don't do that. It makes me frightened. And that leads to this line that comes in his taunting of her that is so iconic, which is, They're coming to get you, Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I don't care if it's forced. I don't care if it's cheesy. I mean, that is just so iconic. We've seen it parodied. I mean, we've we've reviewed movies where they've parodied it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, oh, that line. I just love it. I love it so much. And, and it's because they see kind of this, like, ambling, shuffling guy in the background. And he's teasing her, like, oh, look, there they are. They're coming to get you, Barbara. And meanwhile... Knowing the context of the movie, we know that this is a zombie that's coming around, yeah. um, and 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 it does attack her. It's silly and it's funny, but oh gosh, I love it so much. I was just you know watching this again, like I said for the first time in years. I was just waiting. I'm like, say it, say it. You know, it's like Rocky. <laughs> it's like Rocky Horror Picture Show or something. You're just waiting for the line. Come on, come on. That's right. Uh, oh, it's so good. I love it. You know, and and again. I'm- Talking about inspirations, you have to feel like the screenwriters of It Follows were watching this uh-huh. opening scene and going, ah, this is – I've got an idea for a movie because it is so casually presented. And this, again, is just the genius of how this is shot for such a low-budget, cheap movie. He's so casually presented in the background. 
before they even point him out, you can kind of see him way mm-hmm. off, you know, out of focus in the back, just shuffling along, just like another person in the cemetery walking along. Right. They make a, a little brief mention of him, and you kind of see him back there throughout the rest of the scene. But the focus is so much on on Johnny and Barbara that you almost forget about him, except for the fact that you know you're watching a movie called Night of the Living Dead, and you think this right. may have to be significant, <laughs> right? Barbara's walks right up to him like she's going to apologize and he grabs her and starts to you know wrestle with her it's like he's i guess going to try to eat her and johnny throws her aside and he wrestles with him and johnny gets knocked out on a tombstone and the guy doesn't start digging in to eat johnny he jumps up and seems to be more interested in barbara and so he ambles off against her and here's where we see the first of these things that George Romero, I think he, he clearly had to make some choices here. This isn't the first zombie movie that's come along, right? We had, even back, like you mentioned, Bela Lugosi, we had White Zombie. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always set kind of in voodoo and Haitian. This was the difference that Romero brought to it as he kind of updated it to the modern day and gave you a different reason for the zombies. But he had to make some choices throughout this movie. How are they going to act? How are they going to... What are the rules, as it were? What happens when you get bitten? Uh, Does anything happen when you get bitten? Who becomes a zombie? When do you become a zombie? All these questions get answered as the movie goes on, and those answers get doled out uh, little by little, which is another really cool aspect to the writing, I think. Two things that surprised me, even all many years later, is first of all, this guy, he's ambling and shuffling a little bit, but then when he wants to, he can move. Yeah, yeah. You know, he really kind of runs after her, honestly, and uh, chases her to the car. She gets in the car. She tries to to go, but she doesn't have the keys because Johnny had the keys. And she just puts it in neutral, which is something, you know, you could do back then when we didn't didn't have automatics. Right. uh, (laughs) This guy is coming to her and trying to, you know, punch his way through the window, and he can't. So then he turns around and looks on the ground and grabs a brick and chucks the brick through the window. So not right. only do you get this zombie that isn't always necessarily shambling along, but they have some level of intelligence, at least a little right. bit. Right. Well, and watching this, it just made me think that we have seen so many zombie movies in our lives that we kind of have these expectations. You know, I, I try to put myself back in the mindset of somebody who had never seen who's not us who hasn't seen these millions of zombie movies in fact who maybe has never seen a zombie movie at all and so they would have no idea what the rules were or what the expectations were or even what was going on that's right so everything everything would be new and a surprise you know it it would be a revelation to them when it's revealed in the film that being bit by one of these creatures could infect you and and kill you and make you a zombie i don't know like it's just it's it's so wild to think this is where it all began because we're so used to it we're so submerged in it it's just cool to look back at this as kind of a a relic yeah it really is and it's interesting to see how that got reinterpreted over the years, right? Like, for the longest time, even after this movie, you got the sense, 
in most zombie movies after that, the getting bitten got in, infected you. You know, there was that whole aspect of the, the eat your brains um, that became right. popular, even though it's it's never a thing in this movie that zombies eat brains in particular. It's just that they're craving human flesh. It almost kind of takes a step back from this movie, the some of the subsequent movies, in that the zombies aren't portrayed as particularly intelligent, right? Right, right. Oh, yeah. And then later on, we get, you know, like 28 Days Later, where the, you know, the modern zombie can run, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, you know, we can, we could we could list off hundreds of these movies. But uh, yeah, there are all these different little takes on it. But it's funny to see the things that came from this movie, and some of the things that were dropped, you know, that, that came from this movie that were then later picked up or later played with. And I think he said, you know, a lot of his choices were sometimes matters of necessity, just like yeah. what could they afford to do? What could they not afford to do? What, uh, what was convenient uh, for them and rushing through this, this movie as it's written. And so again, it's not like he sat necessarily sat down on, at a paper on one, you know, cold October afternoon and drew up everything. Um, just like every work of art, you know, it's kind of a work in progress in process that sure. happens over time. So, yeah. well, and what the other thing is, What's interesting is that because no such thing as a zombie movie – well, like you said, there had been like White Zombie and a couple other things. But um, Romero's idea of what zombies were were really kind of the historical idea of zombies, which are um, people who – living people who are somehow possessed or entranced by voodoo witch doctors like in the caribbean and places like that and and so that was kind of the concept of what a zombie was at the time so romero wasn't setting out to make a zombie movie um in fact he was inspired by i am legend that not any of the films or Mm. adaptations but but the original uh, novel mm. uh, i am legend and and he wanted to do something like that he liked the idea of one man being the sole survivor of this epidemic that killed everybody else off but then you know people were coming back but they were monstrous or whatever and he kind of wanted to pull it back a little bit further let's not start where there's only one man left let's go back to when this outbreak happened and people were starting to die off he was so inspired by the novel that i you know i read that he said somewhere i couldn't make them vampires because that's what they were in the novel, and I couldn't <laughs> copy it. That I couldn't copy it that directly. Oh. So I had to. I had to make it something else. And this is the something else that he came up with. And and they don't even. They don't call them zombies no, in the movie. Absolutely not. Uh, yeah. They refer to them as murderers and assassins, and eventually ghouls. But the word zombie is never mentioned in this movie. Um, it was only after this came out and and inspired so many other things that we started using that word to refer to these types of antagonists. And again, like, geez, how cool is that to create something that has become such a huge part of our culture today? I mean, look, you know, the walking dead is one of the most popular series on television Romero himself was not a big fan of the walking dead but regardless of the fact that he wasn't a fan <laughs> clearly you know he inspired this huge huge subgenre of horror uh and and I'll apparently just continue to keep gushing about it <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this could be a very long episode. <laughs> no, no, no. I feel like that's the thing. Like, I feel like we should get into the plot because it's important. Really, what's important about the plot is that Barbara uh, runs away and, and she ends up finding this farmhouse where she's alone for a little while. But then eventually Ben, our, our true hero, shows up and, and she's basically worthless. I mean, she's she's pretty much catatonic and just kind of walking around in a catatonic state. Annoyingly but he, so. Yeah. Yeah. But he comes in and he's like, let's board up the house. Let's figure out what we're going to do. Like, like (laughs) he is all action. Exactly. And he is all action and he does it and he does it all by himself. Like he is just, (laughs) he is, he is the man and he's boarding up all the windows and he's boarding up all the, the doors and they're fighting off zombies all the time. And like, again, he just knows what to do. He's seen things. The first time he saw zombies was like at this gas station and he, there was a fire and he saw that they were afraid of fire. So he's lighting things on fire and throwing them outside to, to keep the zombies at bay. And it works. Like this guy is just so practical and knows what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, eventually these uh, two other guys pop out, out of the cellar. They didn't had no idea they were down there. Um, and as it turns out, they had been there for a while and they've been hiding out in the cellar. Cause that's the safest place. They they've got these big boards. They can board up the cellar door with another, one of my favorite parts of the movie. One of my favorite lines of the movie is when these guys come out, Ben, the main guy is like, how long you guys been down there? I can use some help up here. That's the cellar. It's the safest place. You mean you didn't hear the racket we were making up here? How were we supposed to know what was going on? Could have been those things for all we knew. That girl was screaming. Sure, you must know what a girl screaming sounds like. Those things don't make any noise. Anybody would know somebody if you needed help. Look, it's kind of hard to hear what's going on from down there. We thought we could hear screams, but for all we knew, that could have meant those things were in the house afterward. And you wouldn't come up and help. Well, if there were more, the racket sounded like the place was being ripped apart. How were we supposed to know what was going on? Now, wait a minute. You just got finished saying you couldn't hear from down there. Now you say it sounded like the place was being ripped apart. It would be nice if you get your story straight, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. It's like you were just listening the whole time. (laughs) What did you think was going on up here? (laughs) Oh, I just thought that was so funny. So the people who are down in the basement are Mr. and Mrs. Cooper, uh, Harry and Helen Cooper, and they have a kid. And and all we find out about the kid is that she's hurt. We don't really know what's wrong with her at first. We find out later. And then there's also this teenage couple, Tom and Judy, down there. And so then everybody gets mixed up. And then this is what becomes the heart of the movie. And this is really what Romero, I think, is most respected for is that he sets up these horrific scenarios. But what the movie is really about is about human interaction. You know, yes, they're dealing with zombies trying to come in from the inside, but the way that the humans interact with one another is potentially just as horrible and horrific. And I think that that is really what cemented Romero's legacy, is that he was able to really tell human stories in these extreme circumstances. And he just does a really, really good job at it. Yeah, you know, he starts out really playing to the survivalist fantasy, right? You all, We've all kind of imagined, like, what are we going to do if like some terrible thing happens? It's up to us to you know defend our house. And so how Ben comes in here with a plan and he's he's searching for tools and he's grabbing nails and he's like taking doors off of their hinges to use to board up the walls and he's 
making his house this house into a fortress and he's succeeding at it you know you're thinking yeah this is the this is a guy i can get behind and he's played off against barbara who's this blubbering idiot who's telling stories that don't even make sense um who you just hate because she's absolutely useless and this guy's going to end up protecting her <laughs> she doesn't deserve to be protected but you know you kind of feel like she doesn't deserve to be protected <laughs> right so he's got like this whole survivalist fantasy you know worked up in you and then introduces these disparate characters which then devolves into this lord of the flies type situation where right. you know part of our survivalist fantasy is this thought that we can all band together you know and we can be this outside force or that even though we might have our differences when we're faced with a common enemy we see it in literature all the time but you know romero does it here too where he just breaks that down and uh destroys it you know he set up this 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 fantasy and then he's shown you uh, why it's ultimately fantasy right it's yeah. Oh, gosh. And, and you mentioned <laughs> Barbara tells that story. Play that clip because it's <laughs> so funny. We came to put a wreath on my father's grave. Johnny. And he said, can I have some candy, Barbara? And we didn't have any. And he said, oh, it's late. Why did we start so late? And I said, Johnny, if you'd gotten up earlier, we wouldn't be late. Johnny asked me if I were afraid. And I said, I'm not afraid, Johnny. And then this man started walking up the road. He came slowly. And Johnny kept teasing me and saying, he's coming to get you, Barbara. And I laughed at him and said, Johnny, stop it. And then Johnny ran away. And I I went up to this man and I was going to apologize. Why don't you just keep calm? And I looked up and I said, could he? And he grabbed me. He grabbed me. And he ripped at me. He held me and he ripped at my clothes. I think you should just calm down. Oh, oh, I screamed, Johnny! Johnny, help me! Oh, help me! And he wouldn't let me go. He ripped it, It's so funny and, and so pathetic, but again... As I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of this was ad libbed, and that was one. This is one of the parts that was ad libbed. You know, Romero just told her, "You've got to tell the story of what happened to you in the cemetery," and she she rolls it out in such. I mean, it, it seems stupid, but honestly, this woman it was traumatized. Yes. She probably is in shock, and and we're crapping on her as a character which I think is fair because she is such a weak character, but she plays the actress, uh, Judith O'Day plays it really well. I mean, it's really believable. Yeah. You don't particularly like her as a character, but she plays it in a really believable way. Uh, so I, I've got to at least give her credit for that. You do want to slap her around. And at one point Ben does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she slaps, she's hysterical and she slaps him, I think. And he just, 
punches her out. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, this is for the like, best. <laughs> and it is. And again, that's another reason why I feel like he's such a cool character because he's so practical. Like, uh, I'm just going to take you out for a while. <laughs> and he does. And he's kind to her afterwards um, once she's calmed down and he's protective of her afterwards. And I feel like this guy, you know, again, being his freshman take on this movie, he was just so brave in doing stuff like that. Having a black man punch a white woman in a 1968 film and then having that man be the hero of your film. I mean, what was he thinking? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, he says he wasn't even thinking. He said it wasn't until later. Now, I don't know if I believe this. I, I can't really believe this. But he said it wasn't until later that when people started talking about it that he realized the implications of the, you know, the race, the casting of a black man uh-huh. in this movie. Now, I'm sorry, but the movie's dripping with all kinds of... Uh, if that's the case, lots of very convenient subtext in a lot of different scenes. You know, even when I was a kid, I felt like the underlying tension, perhaps, between Harry uh, and Ben yeah. was, was a racial thing. Now, this time yeah. when I watched it again with that knowledge of, you know, George Romero saying it was an accident, I could see how it's not really written that way. But just his uh-huh. presence in the movie and some of the looks that they give each other and the way he treats him, I think maybe even as a kid, I was just so tuned into um, the unfair way in which African-Americans are treated in America that I just I, I read that right into their relationship in the movie. And it works. Yes, um, works and, really well. Which then, again, makes it all the more subvertive that he's the hero of the movie. Whether it's a happy accident or not, you just have to evaluate works of art as they turn out. And it's great in that aspect. Uh, it, it, mm-hmm. service, it really tells that message. It's there. It's there for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And especially because the guy um, that plays Harry is, I mean, he's just a jerk. You know, he's played by a guy named Carl Hardman and, and he's, you know, kind of your typical middle-aged entitled white guy who just thinks he's right. And, Everybody should listen to him when he's not, you know, he's, he's, he's wrong and, and he's illogical. He wants to lock them all up down in the basement. And Ben is like, no, that's, you know, you're trapping yourself down here up here. We've got all kinds of options. We can run upstairs. We can run outside if we need to, but if you trap yourself down there in that basement, then, then you're just stuck. And, and that becomes a big conflict. But really, the whole middle part of the movie is just them in the house interacting with one another and not knowing what's going on. And they're just getting little bits of information from the radio and from the television from time to time. And I thought that the segments where they're listening to what's going on on the radio and the TV were so effective because they are just getting little bits and pieces. At first, the, the, the radio people are like, we don't really know what's going on. You know, lock yourselves up in your houses. It appears to be a mass murder by unknown assassins. We don't know. Lock yourself up in your houses. And then later... Civil defense will- Officials in Cumberland have told newsmen that murder victims show evidence of having been partially devoured by their murderers. And uh, you've got to get to rescue stations. There are rescue stations set up in every city at hospitals and police stations and, and public buildings and whatnot. Eventually it gets to 
this big explanation, which as I was watching this again this time, part of what I appreciated in the first half of the movie, I was like, oh, they're they're not going to try to explain why this is happening. Uh, and, and I liked that. I thought, we don't really need to know why this is happening. That's not really important. But I forgot that they do eventually explain at least potentially why this is happening. So far, all the betting on the answer to that question centers on the recent Explorer satellite shot to Venus. That satellite, you'll recall, started back to Earth, but never got here. That's the space vehicle which orbited Venus and then was purposely destroyed by NASA when scientists discovered it was carrying a mysterious high-level radiation with it. And they don't ever confirm that that's definitively why this is happening, um, but it's suggested. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter. But I just found, you know, all of that reporting on the radio and TV to really be an effective way to kind of inform the plot and inform the characters. I just really liked it. I did, too. And, you know, it was a little dated, but doesn't really matter but i found like the 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 radio and the tv really puts you in that house with them you know i was kind of sitting there uh, on the edge of my seat waiting to hear the latest development or what little bits and bits of of explanation they could give us which is exactly how those guys in the house were and yeah it was really well done too i thought uh aside from the fact that you you'd want to see bigger crowds and maybe more news people you know they they couldn't do as much uh, with the budget that they had it does seem to focus on that local area around which they are which is fine because that's how generally you would get your news i don't i guess they probably weren't tuned into a major network it looked like it was more of a regional channel i know Mm -hmm. that they had to move the bunny ears (laughs) right right (laughs) but you know this was an interesting aspect of it as well and i have to feel like there's something there's a message here too when i was watching oh the land of the dead that came out what 2000 and six or 2007 uh-huh. i went there with a bunch of college students and we watched it and i thought that movie was fun too and romero's films always have something to say you know he took this genre mm-hmm. and he didn't just create it but he owned it you know he said i'm yes. gonna do stuff with it and he all every every one of his movies is, is a little different in what it's trying to get across with the zombies and it, it feels though that the, the thread that goes throughout all of them is just the unmistakable unshakable and unstoppable force of progress for good or for bad what is humanity doing we're moving forward and just like these zombies and ultimately whether it's good or bad there's there's very little or nothing that can be done to stop you know the overturning the constant overturning of the status quo and i feel Mm -hmm. like even that theme is present again whether it was intentional or not in this first movie because when barbara first gets into this house Even for 1968, this is an old house. It's Mm -hmm. an old farmhouse, so it has stood at least for decades. It's out in the middle of a field. You know, we're in a very rural setting. The television that they have has to be hauled down from the upstairs. It's not like, you know, in a prominent place in the home. It's like a a really old person in 1968 who maybe has a TV but doesn't use it very often. There's an old-looking radio that he turns on. Again, for 1968, this radio is classic. It's like a 1920, 1930-style radio um, that they're using. And so I feel like even the fact that they're boarded up in this house that's overtaken by the zombies, that this house just stands as a testament to the status quo, the old conservative time that has been passed by. (laughs) 
<laughs> you mm-hmm. know, even at this time. Yeah. And the fact that when they get there, this the owner of the house is dead. They don't even get to meet her. Like, she's one of the first casualties and it happens off screen. Yep. But she's been dead for a while and she's decayed. And, you know, it, it's funny that she doesn't come back to life. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting point of that movie that I'm not sure if that was just overlooked or if there's a message I, there yeah, as well. I don't you know? know. It's just kind of unanswered, I think. But um, that the fact that it is set in this kind of um, – I don't know if mundane is the right word, but you know this, this suburban, rural setting. Again, that was something that was, was kind of new and innovative. You know, I mentioned before, you know, all of those uh, old horror movies, monster movies, they were set in exotic places, you know, mm. Transylvania or, you know, all of these crazy weird places. And this was set at home. You know, like for yeah. for the most for for most of America, this is where you live. You know, this is small town. This is rural, uh, and this could happen here. This it, it doesn't have to be some exotic locale. Something horrific could happen here, and that was virtually unheard of at at that time. Which is it just blows the mind, like. <laughs> that's yeah. so common now, you know, for for you for you to see things set in these normal places. But at the time, that had not really happened in horror. And it's good for you, George Romero. <laughs> <laughs> You've done so much for us. <laughs> I would go out to lay some flowers on his grave, but I'm worried about that guy shuffling in the background. I just gotta say. <laughs> yeah i mean ultimately again there's so much you know we could talk so much about plot there's so much that goes on but it's really just a lot of human drama in this house you know the big things that happen are um there's a gas pump outside which again you youngins who listen you you probably won't think about this but that you know, wasn't uncommon, especially in rural areas. People, private people sometimes had their own gas pumps or there would be a local gas pump at just some random farmhouse where people could go and get gas. Um, So there was, there's a gas pump there. And uh, at first they can't find the keys, but then it turns out the keys are in the basement. And then uh, Ben and Tom go on this mission to get gas. And like, you think, you really think, because this is late in the movie, you're like, oh yeah, they're going to get the gas and they're going to get out of here. But it just ends up being a total blunder. You know, they go out there and they can't get the, the key that was labeled gas doesn't really open the, unlock the, the, the pump and so Ben has to shoot it and then when Tom pulls the gas out and this is after he said multiple times how he knows his way around these things mm. um, he pull, he pulls it out and he just shoots gasoline all over the place <laughs> <laughs> And he, he shoots it all over the ground. It's like, and that, all over. It's like that gasoline fight in Zoolander. Yeah. <laughs> it totally is. And and so the, the truck catches on fire, and the girlfriend, Judy, had followed them out there. So she's in the truck, and Tom and, and, and Judy get in the truck, and they try to drive away, but... Uh, and and they stop and and Tom tries to get Judy out, but her shirt is stuck in the door, and they end up getting blown up in there. And you know it's sad that they die because you like them as characters; they're very nice young people, good-looking young people. You don't want them to die, but um, they do. Uh, and then there's 
probably the most grotesque scene of the movie where the zombies are eating their guts and just like eating their arms and stuff. And uh, I read that everything that they were eating was just ham covered in chocolate sauce. (laughs) And, And apparently, apparently that combination was so repulsive that they joked that they really didn't even need to put any makeup on the extras because they all looked so sick just having to eat this stuff. But it's, you know, as as funny as that is, I mean, it's a really pivotal point of the movie because that's really been their only hope for salvation has yeah. been this truck. And you and you really think that they're they're going to get away. Um and then the truck blows up and and that's just it. There's there's really just no hope. Yeah, and it's it's again, this is like the beginning of the bleakness for me like as a kid. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, like not only did their plan go awry, but it just kind of fizzled out in the dumbest way." Yeah. The here people were supposed to know what they're doing who just screwed up just yep. dumped a bunch of gas everywhere all oh, crap couldn't get away like it, there's nothing super dramatic about it right it's just wow now they're dead and now they get the added injustice of having their bodies picked apart and mm-hmm. eaten by these people uh, which is the first time that we see this right this is the first time that right. we actually see um, human flesh being devoured and i think it was really smart to pace this out a little later in the movie because this movie just builds it does a really good job of that yeah yeah and and i think that the news reports do a lot to help that because we keep getting more and more information like at first it was just murderers and then it's these murderers that are eating their victims and then we come to find out that if you are bitten by one of these things, ghouls as they call them, then you're infected and you'll eventually die and immediately become one of them. There's a report on the news. In the cold room at the university, uh, we had a cadaver, a cadaver from uh, which all four limbs had been amputated. Sometime early this morning, it opened its eyes and began to move its trunk. It was dead, but it opened its eyes and tried to move. I feel like the guy on the news literally says, drag them out in the street, douse them in gasoline, and set them on fire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got a very, he's got a very nice, like, 1950s style uh, uh, way of, of, of saying this. You know, back when people were a little more eloquent and sensitive in their speech. The bereaved will have to forego the dubious comforts that a funeral service will give. Uh, they're just dead flesh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it couldn't be more direct than that. <laughs> right. And, and and we get that, and we also eventually get the information that they're really not difficult to kill. You just have to make sure that you destroy their brain. Mm-hmm. It, it's the brain that has been reanimated. You have to destroy that. After the whole explosion outside, then the the zombies <clears throat> become very aggressive, and they're getting in the house. And, and there's lots of other things like when Ben comes back from this little expedition, oh, my uh, Harry Harry's supposed to let him back in, but he doesn't. You can see the internal conflict. Do I let this guy back in and risk letting the zombies get in, or do I just lock myself and my family up in the basement? And as much of a jerk as this guy is, I do feel like Romero and the actor did a good job of portraying that conflict. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just, oh, I'm a jerk, so I don't care. It's weighing your option. 
and it's great because he could have been a cardboard cutout character, but because he's played against these other characters in a very skillful way, he's not. Like even toward the you know the beginning of the movie when when he's doing the arguing for locking themselves in the cellar and he finally stomps off to the cellar we get a scene of him talking with his wife and his wife is it almost seems like his wife barely puts up with him right and uh, oh my god another one of my favorite lines of the movie she says something like we may not enjoy living together but dying together isn't going to solve anything you know, you get this idea of of their relationship in a very brief period of time. These are people who are clearly not happy people. <laughs> yeah, and she even brings up. I mean, you could tell what the conflict is. Like she, he says something about how he's right, and she says, "Oh, well, that's what's most important to you, isn't it?" Being right, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it's it's a problem in their relationship. It's it's clearly a character flaw that he has, and so it's. You know, it adds some depth to his character. At least it gives some depth to his character that keeps him from being this cardboard cutout. And sure enough, yes. when Ben kicks in the door anyway and comes in, man, does he give a look to Harry. But he's way more... Gives concerned. him a look. He beats the shit out of him. Well, he eventually does. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, like, he at first, you know, he's got to board it back up. And Harry comes comes back out and starts helping and him pull the boards yeah. back up. You know, I... He could have just had Harry like lock himself in the in the cellar completely, but you see that little bit of guilt there, right? The guilt. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And you're right. He beats the crap out of him, and you were so happy that he does it too. You're like, <laughs> that's right, man. Within an inch of his life. But at the same time, I'm thinking you probably have better things to do. <laughs> well, he, he ends up shooting him. Yeah. And this is another really shocking thing of this movie is that our hero, Ben, at some point realizes that some of these people are goners and it's better for him to just hasten their end uh, than it is for him to try to save them. He's decided Harry is no good and so he just shoots him with the rifle. It's because as he's boarding up the doors, he drops the gun and Harry takes it and is pointing it at him Mm -hmm. and is saying, I'm going down here with my family, screw you, and eventually... Ben fights him and gets the gun back and just shoots him. And that is shocking because you don't expect that kind of behavior from a hero. But realistically, in the heat of the moment, that was probably the right thing to do. Like this guy, this guy does not have your interest in mind at all. If your interest in surviving, you got to look out for yourself. I would call it like a real walking dead moment. It's like where there are no good options. And so people end up doing something that is going to be morally repugnant anyway, but at least it's, it's the one that's going to save their skin. Right. Even still, even after being threatened, even after fighting him off, you don't often see in a movie where the hero finally gets the gun and then just shoots the guy. (laughs) Right. Right. And this leads up to the scenes because while they're fighting Barbara, is being besieged by zombies, and they're reaching through the door. And there are just three moments in this movie, just in quick succession, that all happen at the end that just devastated me as a kid. Yeah. The first of them is the fact that Barbara gets pulled out by her own brother. Yep. He's the dead guy who is responsible for pulling her out into the waiting zombies. It's like, oh my God. Gosh, like I'd even forgotten about this guy from the beginning. And she was right. so concerned about her brother. And at one point early in the movie, she's insisting he's out there. He's alive. We have to go get him. And there he is, dead, pulling her in, responsible for her demise. As a kid, that just crushed me. It's so shocking because this is the character that you've been with from the beginning. And you don't 
expect her to die. It, you know, it, it's kind of the Marion Crane and Psycho thing. Like, she's the main character, or at least from the beginning, she's the main character. And so you expect her to make it and then to see her go. And yes, in such a tragic way to be pulled in um, by the brother, like you said, that she was so concerned about. It is shocking. And I'm not surprised that audiences were shocked by a lot of the things that happened in this movie. Well, then, you know, it's all kind of chaos. Ben isn't there to help her. Um, Harry stumbles downstairs with his fatal gunshot wound and just reaches out. It's it's really sad, actually. His daughter is still laid out downstairs, knocked out from, you know, what we had learned a little earlier was an actual zombie bite yeah. dying. And he just reaches towards her as he falls down to the ground. The mother... How was she? She made it up. I guess she was upstairs at some point. Or she came back down. Yeah, she she had no. She had been up there and she had been trying to keep the zombies out. It was actually uh, Barbara came out of her catatonic state to kind of try to help That's um, the mom. Um, but then when Barbara got taken, uh, I feel like the mom ran to the basement and ran downstairs. And this was another thing that absolutely shocked and appalled audiences and critics was that the daughter becomes, Karen becomes uh, a zombie. And when the mother, Helen comes down, she sees Karen eating Harry, the dad. (laughs) Um, But it's, you know, it's a really interesting scene because while I'm sure she's horrified at the same time, this is her daughter and, and, you know, she's, she's saying, Oh, my baby, you know, you know, she doesn't retaliate immediately. She doesn't try to fight. And there's really kind of a, it's a graphic scene where the mom uh, kind of falls back and is, is on the ground and the, and Karen gets like a, a gardening trowel and just, stabs and stabs and stabs her and you see the blood shooting all over the wall and like it goes on for a while it's it's pretty gross and intense and people were shocked and appalled by this child (laughs) killing their mother when you break this down it is it's really upsetting i mean first of all it is the most graphic scene by far in this entire movie and even by today's standards it's it's a very graphic scene of course the fact that the daughter is killing her mother to me especially as a child you know i was i was pretty brutalized by this point by this sure movie. sure um, you know it just it just brings all these just sick feelings up from your stomach but the fact that she's not <laughs> She didn't descend on her and start biting into her neck. She looked at the wall, grabbed a gardening trowel, and decided to stab her. Mm -hmm. Again, this is the way that Romero zombies are are working a little differently, you know, than what we think of automatically when we think of zombies. Um, The one earlier can prick up a brick, you know, they can overturn cars, they can knock out... Break out your headlights. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But she chooses to pick a gardening trowel up off of the wall and to stab her mother with. And doesn't even eat her, you know? No. By the time um, Ben retreats to the basement... It's the only place he has left to go to. Um, he boards up the door, comes down. He sees this terrible scene, and he ends up shooting the girl. Yeah. So bold. And, sh- and shoots them all. <laughs> has mm-hmm. to shoot them all because right. they are now zombies. Um, and then this, you know, this is the end. He's The zombies have gotten in the house. He has boarded himself up in the cellar. And, you know, what's going to happen now? Well, 
Apparently, as we've seen on the news in the last broadcast that we saw, we saw that law enforcement and the government and the army and all the special forces have figured out that they're re- these things are really not hard to kill. You just got to get them in the head. And so once they've done that, they've put together all of these posses and forces to go out and take them out. And it's, it's being successful. And so the, the kind of the very last scene is we see that this group, it looks like a local group, like maybe yeah. led by some kind of sheriff. local sheriff. Right. And the militia uh, and that he could rankle up. The militia, the, the militia of good old boys. boys. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that they pulled together and they're just going out and they're shooting these zombies in the head. And they've made their way to the farmhouse and you see them just taking out the zombies left and right. Just, you know, just very easily and casually shooting them in the head and taking them down. And then you see Ben in the basement and uh, he hears this. It's muffled because he's down there. So it takes him a while to understand what's going on, but eventually he hears it and he goes upstairs and he's just, you know, he's got his gun because he's uh, of course frightened and he's kind of looking out the window and the sheriff just says, Oh, there's another one. Take him out. And the guy just shoots him in the head and that's it. Like what a crazy shocking ending. And then they do this really cool thing as the credits roll where they show images of what's happening, but it's like, it's really old school crime scene photos, like really gritty black and white crime scene photos. And you see that Ben's body gets thrown onto a huge heap of bodies right next to the very first zombie that we saw from the graveyard. And then they just get incinerated I mean, it's so bleak. This guy had been so resourceful and so strong in the face of this terrible event. And then just to see him so casually taken out with no remorse, with no oops, you know, with no, oh, darn it, we got the wrong guy. Nope. They just thought they shot another zombie and he just got burned with the rest of them. Man. By the good old boys. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, even the good old white boys. I'm mm-hmm. sure that didn't, you know, that didn't go unnoticed. I am well, sure. But, yeah. Plus, uh, the I thought those photos are very reminiscent of the, you know, photos of lynchings and things. Uh, yes, very reminiscent. The burning. Oh my gosh! Like, I'm sorry, but that's where I look at it and I go, "There's no way Romero didn't know what he was doing here." <laughs> I know. I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> But it's, it's wild. I mean, it, yeah, it's such a bleak and dreary ending. Uh, but, oh, man, I mean, it really – it's impactful. I mean, you feel it. It's a gut punch at the end that that happens. Yeah. And, and we've already talked for way too long, so I'll try to be brief in this. But seriously, we could list a bazillion movies that were clearly directly inspired by this. You know – Romero himself directed five more of the dead movies after this dawn of the dead extinction of the dead land of the dead, a a million bazillion. Yeah. And then because it's not copyrighted, it's been remade a bazillion times. It's been remade. It's been animated. It's been done in comic book form. It's been done on stage. It's, it's been done everywhere. It's been done in different countries. It's been translated into like more than 25 different languages. Um, even movies that, 
you know, are not specifically about zombies like uh, The Evil Dead, uh, Cabin in the Woods, where you get these people put into remote places with this threat coming from the outside. Just really virtually probably about (laughs) 50 to 75 percent of our modern horror has in some way been influenced by this movie it's so influential and it's so i i just you know if 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 you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, you have to watch it. Like it's a rule. Like it's a requirement. You cannot listen to this podcast any further. We will ban you. Right. <laughs> There's a way we can you are get... required to watch this movie. I mean, it just laid the foundation for so many of the things that I love and treasure. And I can I can't begin to express what respect i have for this man that we lost he was an old man and he had a very long prolific successful career you know he preferred to stay uh more in the indie realm um his first studio movie uh big studio movie was a movie called monkey shines which I remember from my childhood and I remember really, really liking. In fact, I'd like for us to watch that at some point. Mm. Um, But he did not have a good experience on it. You know, he felt like there was too much meddling with the executives and the producers and he just wanted to do his thing. Um, And so he did, you know, he kind of went back and he did big budget movies beyond that because he was able to, because of the respect that he deserved. But uh, just an artist i I can't imagine leaving that kind of legacy i I for one i feel really fortunate to have grown up kind of at that crossroads where i did you know like i said this movie i saw it as a child and so i didn't get to see a lot of the movies that inspired it until after i saw this one so in many ways i i was I was really lucky seeing it as a child, as weird as that sounds. But, you know, like, we talk about all these scenes and about how influential it is. It's just hard, probably, for a person nowadays to put themselves in that same place where they hadn't seen any of this before. Right. Just to know how impactful it could be. However, if you want to get a little bit of a contemporaneous... um, a contemporaneous account of this movie, go online and go to Roger Ebert's site. Another guy, may he rest in peace, one of my favorite um, film critics in the whole world, Always, almost always agree with everything he says. He has a review where he went to see Night of the Living Dead when it came out with an audience full of mostly kids and teenagers. And most of his observations are about how the audience reacts to the movie. <laughs> and it's really interesting to read because it, perfectly mirrored how I as a kid uh, reacted to the movie. So you should check that out as well. It's really good. I agree with you. I really like um, almost everything that Romero's done. It's not all perfect, but it all has heart. And you can tell this guy, as we said before, when we reviewed Martin, he's a real artist. He really is. And it was probably better for him to work mostly independently as long as he could make it work financially. And he had his tough times, but I think he he seemed to be pretty happy with where he ended up. We've gotten a, a good stable of really good, clever horror films. A, a man who, in many ways, elevated the whole genre. Absolutely. He gave it something to say. He showed that horror films could function, um, could be mainstream movies, uh, and and could be smart, you know, and could be well-made. Yeah. 
and uh, have I, something to say. Yeah. Yeah, and and they really rose above a lot of the junk. Uh, the opportunistic, exploitative junk at the time. You can have an exploitation movie, but you can also have good exploitation movies, and his here certainly were. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And before we sign out, I just want to say that it's it's really been a a, a sad couple of weeks. We also lost Martin Landau, mm. who was an amazing actor, not well known for you know horror by any means, but. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, we also lost John Hurd, yeah. um, who everybody loves him from Home Alone, but um, he was also in Chud uh, mm. and <laughs> and Sharknado. Uh, so you know he he did his his time in the horror industry too. You know it's it's sad to lose these people that we've known for so long and that we've grown up with, but they leave behind something. Uh, of a legacy and 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 it's nice to be able to remember them in that way so george romero and uh uh, martin landau and john hurd we're still celebrating you um wherever you may be thank you for everything that uh you've given us and don't come back and yes Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, anywhere that your uh, favorite podcasts are presented. You can also find us on Facebook, where we have a page there. You can like us there, share us there also, and join the conversation. Tell us what you think of this movie, and suggest movies you'd like us to do in the future. Until that time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Ah.